The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody. Uh, I have uh, a compilation of clips from earlier in the year from WrestleMonics Radio, uh, and I was finishing that up tonight. Tonight is December 26th, 2020. It is about 9.45 p.m. Eastern uh, on Saturday night, and you'll hear that uh, year-in-review retrospective of 2020 uh, after this. So I've gone back and put this at the beginning. And uh, I'm just going to share with you some memories I have of Brody Lee, of uh, John Huber, who uh, I knew originally first encountered uh, back in would have been 2003 when I was, uh, I had just done my first spot on an independent wrestling show as a referee in July 2003. And the following week, we took a, a drive from the Buffalo, Niagara area down to Holland, New York, which is, I don't know, about an hour south. <clears throat> and we were wrestling at some speedway in front of like five people who had picnic tables out. But when we got to the show, there were there were other wrestlers who were not from our immediate area there. And uh, in the early days of independent wrestling, at least in my scene, things were very uh, regionally isolated. You know, you'd have entire shows that consisted of just people from that driving distance region. But we, we encountered like like aliens encountering another intelligent species. We we encountered some wrestlers from the Rochester area, uh, wrestlers such as Charisma and Rick Matrix and Huber Boy Two, and, and that would have been the first time that I would have met uh, the wrestler we would know later as Brody Lee. Uh, he wrestled originally as Huber Boy Two, I believe, in the Rochester area. Um, some background here too, so. Brody Lee actually appeared on the predecessor to this podcast, Indeed Wrestling Weekly, as people know. Chris Mookie Harrington created this podcast and this WrestleNomics brand, but what preceded it was uh, Indeed Wrestling Weekly, which was not a weekly program, but uh, was a podcast that Mookie did. And uh, among people who appeared on it were T.C. Watts, who was uh, Huber Boy 2, John Huber, Brody Lee. All, all the nice things that you will hear people say about Brody uh, in the next, the, ne- the next, I don't know, rest of our lives, I guess, um, are true. Um, I, I wasn't close to him as Mookie was. I, Brody and Mookie knew each other before they were ever involved in independent wrestling. Uh, I believe they were, they were involved in the same backyard wrestling uh, promotion company, whatever you want to call it. So they knew each other, I think, going back to 2000. And most recently, obviously, they, they ended up working for the same wrestling company in AEW. But I'm from Buffalo, New York, and Brody is from Rochester, New York, so we were in neighboring independent wrestling regions, and we were often on the same show. Uh, I'm, I'm just getting a lot of uh, memories of, you know, just memories of him. Uh, 
when he went to WB, I, I remember, you know, all of our, my wrestler friends in the Buffalo area, we would go to a, a bar and we would watch Royal Rumble together. And the first time that Brody appeared uh, in the Royal Rumble match, um, you know, we, the, the, us at the bar would, would go crazy uh, in response to the Rumble. And we did sort of a lottery thing where everybody had a, a number in, in the Rumble and you'd win, you'd put in $5 and whoever won the, the Rumble, whoever had the number of the Rumble winner would win the match. And we would react as if we were the crowd. Uh, but when Brody came out and entered the Rumble, you know, we were indie wrestlers who wrestled with him. And uh, I remember everybody, I think it was like a Toy Story reference, but I remember everybody chanting, one of us, one of us, one of us. Because we, I guess we felt like uh, one, one of the indie wrestlers who were one of us had made it to the Royal Rumble and to WWE and to the big, big show. Um, I mean, he's somebody who was uh, at the old Rochester wrestling dojo. He was somebody who was always there and training. I think they, they ended up hanging his uh, old wrestling shoes from one of the pipes after he uh, left for Florida. Yeah, I think he was probably one of the first people who powerbombed me. I said I'd take some powerbombs before that. We would do a lot of things on the fly, uh, at the dojo there. And, uh, I guess he would just sort of, he's one of the people who I would just sort of trust to, to, to do stuff. And, uh, but in, in recent years, I had some interactions with him. Uh, he was very helpful and wish that he didn't have to be, uh, as far as getting some of our students from grapplers anonymous in Buffalo, our, our wrestling school in Buffalo. Uh, he was very helpful in helping them get extra work, uh, which I sort of wor worked with him on and communicated it out to to certain people who were going to do extra work. And he was the one who, you know, made sure that it happened at WWE. Um, during his time where he was, I think, recovering from a wrist injury, uh, where, he, you know, he wasn't wrestling for WWE. This is sort of towards the end of his contract. Uh, I remember one day I was going on a long bike ride down by this one area in Buffalo where there is, um, there's a lot of these really unique looking windmills. And uh, I remember getting this Facebook message from, Jonathan Huber. I was like, Oh, what, what did I do wrong? <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, he asked if he could come to the school and, uh, and just help, you know, help out or something. So we, we had him, you know, come out to, to the school and, uh, it's not a very, uh, you know, I don't think it hardly ever happens that you have somebody who's with WWE sort of come in and, you know, participate in training, uh, in an independent wrestling school. It's, uh, it's something that, you know, in the seminar culture, we could have charged people a lot of money for, but, uh, he just, he wanted something to do. I think he was getting restless and there wasn't uh, any wrestling for him to participate in, uh, in, in WB, I guess, cause he had the injury. So he came to, uh, to Buffalo and, uh, we, we basically had a night of training with a lot of feedback from him. Um, and there's a big group picture of, of us all, uh, at the end of that, that I will, will, will probably share soon. <sighs> Um, I, I wrestled him one time and I think one time only on April 15th, 2011. Um, it was just after, in fact, the passing of Larry Sweeney. Um, but, uh, like, see, he, he, he took the match on short notice because the, the person I was supposed to wrestle, f wrestle before originally, uh, couldn't make it. And he took the match, I think, like a week notice. And, uh, I think he had been working Dragon Gate at the time. So that was, it was, you know, a cool thing to me to be able to wrestle him and I you know I'd known him before but that he was actually getting around and doing 
you know, kind of major league level stuff. And I remember, uh, you know, he got to the building and we went over some, some stuff in the, in the ring or what's sort of the first thing I think he, he said to me is like, you probably want to tear it up, huh? And I was like, yeah, of course. So just, uh, you don't always get that with, uh, with people, especially if they're of a higher stature or level of accomplishment in wrestling than you are. You don't always necessarily get somebody who's obviously excited and motivated to, uh, you know, overachieve. I, I guess he, he strikes me as somebody who had a, um, a strong sense of what was right and wrong in wrestling. Um, again, I, it's, it's going to sound like we're just saying nice things about somebody because they just passed away. But, uh, he was somebody who, um, I, I can't think of anybody having anything bad to say about him. Um, you know, he wasn't afraid to tell people, uh, that what they were saying or doing was wrong. And he was usually right. Uh, I, I will remember uh, his, his love for the Toronto Maple Leafs and his likewise hatred for Buffalo sports teams. Uh, so the, uh, the all-time referee in the Buffalo region, Andrew Mullen, also a, a big Maple Leafs fan. And they often bonded over that. Uh, sort of two people that you necessarily expect to bond. Um, I will remember too... Uh, opening up my trunk at a bar one night and giving him a, a Killian Red bottle of beer. And he was excited about that. <laughs> just a lot of weird, random memories. But it's just, I, I just, you know, read the news and um, a little while ago and just sort of sat, sat with the laptop in my, in my lap and it just unbelievable. Um, he's got two young kids. And um, I think, in fact, the last time I think I would have seen him was uh, he likes to have Huberfest every year, which was basically a, a party in the summer. Um, and I was at it one time, which was the last time that it was, I think maybe it was the last time they ever had it, but it was the last time it was in Rochester. It was just before um, uh, him and his family moved back to Florida. It's unbelievable. But uh, I, I guess uh, for me and for some of my other independent wrestling peers in the Buffalo area, it, it was this sort of physical his success in, in wrestling was this, this physical evidence that somebody who we were in rings with and in locker rooms with and hung out with w was somebody who somehow made their way to TV in front of millions of people. And that it was, it was possible and that, you know, we weren't just uh, doing some weird, well, we were doing some weird independent wrestling, but it, we weren't just doing this as part of some utterly disconnected universe and that, you know, the, it was the ground level of big time wrestling. He felt like he was one of us. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting on demand from Buffalo, New York, where today is Friday. December 25th, 2020. But you are listening to this at the earliest on December 26th, 2020. And we are at the end of the strangest year in my lifetime. Uh, not a normal program today. We will be taking a look back at the year that was 2020. As I record this, I am almost done editing and putting together the entire program here, picking out various clips from various episodes of WrestleNomics throughout the last year of 2020. And 
My oh my, has that been a, a humbling experience. As you may know, a quick history of the show, uh, Chris Harrington and I co-hosted this program, really with Chris Harrington in the driver's seat, for a couple years through 2017 and 2018. Then he got a job with AEW, and I did a couple episodes in 2019. And then 2020 started. In the world of WrestleNomics, it was kicked off with a major story with the release or termination of WWE co-presidents George Barrios and Michelle Wilson. And then from there, COVID struck. I ended up having a lot more free time because I wasn't going to wrestling training. Some was I going two? I think I was going two nights a week, and I was no longer traveling on weekends to wrestling shows. So really, at the very beginning of the pandemic, when it started to affect the United States and affect the wrestling business, I started to record WrestleNomics radio episodes every week, and I have been going since the middle of March every week, recording these strange monologues. And as I've been going back into the archive of the last year, over the last few days, and, and as you listen to various clips here uh, from, from the previous 12 months, uh, I have to say, you will notice, for one thing, the evolution in the audio quality, and some of the delivery is pretty cringe, but you've made it this far. This was also maybe my most prolific year in terms of writing. It was certainly the most writing I've done and posted online in a, in a long time. All of this work, by the way, on WrestleNomics.com. But anyway, it's been a very, you know, and WrestleNomics.com didn't even really exist in the form that it, that it does today at the beginning of this year. It's, it's been uh, what I think in WWE parlance one would call a transformative year in the world of WrestleNomics and in the world of my ongoing education and pontification about the wrestling business. But a, a year ago, I figured that uh, I would just be doing WrestleNomics radio about once every quarter when WWE did its uh, quarterly report and did not think it very likely that I would do episodes otherwise, maybe here and there when there were big stories. Um, it's hard to do a podcast, especially for me. The idea that now I'm doing a, uh, about an hour of audio every week where I just talk to myself and talk into the ether is really an absurd occurrence to me. And that maybe there are, you know, I, I don't, I don't know what to believe in, in the numbers of podcast analytics, but to, but to think that there are maybe hundreds of people who listen to it in addition to that is a very strange thing. But a thing that I'm also kind of proud of, um, because God damn, I have an ego and all these people should be listening to me anyway. But thanks to everyone for listening and thanks for your patience as hopefully this show show. I prefer to call it a program because that's how that's how narcissistic I am. This is like the language control that I've learned from from the wisdom of Vince. I would like to think that this program has improved in quality over the last year. Uh, it, it certainly has in audio quality. Uh, thanks to the, the great people at Voice Meter for making that happen. But thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks as well to everybody who supports at patreon.com slash WrestleNomics. We've been doing that again since October. But yeah, doing this weekly is not something that I foresaw. It's something that really sort of took the place of the time and energy that I was putting into being a wrestler and being a wrestling trainer, which has been absent entirely for me since March. Um, as... You hear news as I hear news about the vaccine, 
that seems to be in the uh, almost foreseeable future. Who, who knows when regular people like me will be able to get the vaccine. That's pretty much my personal requirement for getting back in the ring, to, uh, for getting back to training, uh, is to be vaccinated first. But I have every intention, we'll see how much uh, my bandwidth can handle it, but I have every intention of continuing to do this weekly while getting back to wrestling. There was a time uh, during COVID here where I felt like, um, and I still, you know, I, I, I didn't really miss it, <laughs> being a wrestler, uh, in that I enjoyed the time off. Um, it was good to have a break mentally and physically from doing wrestling. And if somebody had to tell me that 2019 was the last year uh, I, I got to be a wrestler, that would have been a good year to end on. Um, I would be okay with that. You know, I'm 35 years old. But in the last few weeks, I am starting to to feel, I don't know if I miss it, but but starting to feel that I've had enough rest. It, it looks to me, in my totally unprofessional opinion, that maybe live events will be back to normal in the second half of 2021. And maybe that's when independent wrestling gets back to normal in the United States. Independent wrestling is going to be really challenged by the vast number of wrestlers who, who are signed and maybe increasingly so as time goes on, get signed. The, I, I feel that before t 2014, there was a disproportionate amount of talent on the at least the U.S. independent wrestling scene. And that has changed as WWE uh, considers talent differently than it once did, as other players in the wrestling industry and as AEW has ri risen to uh, compete with WWE and other companies for talent. Um, what's left on the indies is no longer under-harvested. So I am, I am excited about the idea of not just being a wrestler and participating and trying to fortify the independent wrestling scene, but in doing that as a trainer too, or as someone of influence who can try to make other wrestlers a little bit better and try to make the independent wrestling scene to do my part, to make it, to make it uh, more, to make it better populated with good wrestlers. Cause I think we're in an interesting place with independent wrestling where there have been years now of building up brand value with various independent wrestling companies and establishing somewhat of an independent wrestling fan base and establishing all of these uh, video products. Uh, whether that's IWTV, which I've done a limited amount of work for, or whether that's everybody's pivot share channel, or whether that's the presence that some companies have on YouTube or any, any new technology or, or media platforms that may emerge and become uh, very powerful tools for independent wrestling. Um, all that stuff is not going away. If anything, it's going to become stronger. I'm, I'm very confident that it will become uh, more useful and uh, more effective at reaching potential independent wrestling fans. The, the talent that independent wrestling once relied on will be less available, certainly. And the, the shelves of independent wrestling will have to be restocked with new talent. We'll see how that plays out. But all of those tools and all of that awareness and all of that brand value, all the media, the, the media resources that independent wrestling has built up over this time, those all stay. And, 
And as, as all the major companies have gone on and continued to do wrestling in one form or another, with some exceptions, independent wrestling has been pretty dormant. It's going to be a, a totally fresh and new season of independent wrestling whenever live events can happen again safely. So I'm really interested in seeing how that plays out and and I'm really interested in participating in that challenge. So that's a a ramble about independent wrestling, but about WrestleNomics. I I plan to continue to do, do this weekly, indefinitely, even after wrestling gets back to normal. I don't know if uh, Friday will always work when wrestling is back to normal, but we'll see. Friday is my current night to do recording. But I've, I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot about Excel. I've learned how to do pivot tables this year. God, this is what exactly what you tune in for to hear me praise the pivot table. One of my favorite Christmas gifts that I received today is a book on, on how to do, how to use Python, which is a, I don't know, I don't know if it's a language or if it's a program, but it's a, it's it's a it's something that you use to extract data to scrape data from anywhere. It, it's a programming language or a programming uh, resource that that can uh, clearly I don't know what it is, but I, I I need to learn how to do it because it will be very helpful to uh, to doing the kind of research that we do here at WrestleNomics. Throughout this year, we've had a lot of help from uh, Matt Schroeder, who knows how to use Python very well and has helped uh, give me data, has given me data uh, related to the Cage Match Wrestling Database, the Wrestling Data Database, and the Showbuzz Daily website. So that's, that's why I have so much TV viewership data, uh, especially concerning the, the total audience and the P18 to 49 demographic, is because of the data that Matt has extracted from Showbuzz Daily and some of the, the really deep research that I've done this year about, uh, about wrestling, about wrestling match results especially, has been because of the data that Matt has extracted from cagematch.net. God, this is more than 10 minutes now. I didn't expect this to be such a long state of the union. But, um, and as I said before, there are a number of people who help WrestleNomics be WrestleNomics. Uh, Corey Gibson has been extremely helpful in collecting a lot of the data that appears in the Wrestling Observer newsletter including but not limited to the quarter-hour viewership data. And I've had help from lawyers like Dan Carroll, who are actually lawyers who uh, know a lot more about the law than I do to help us understand a lot of the legal issues that come up. And in this guerrilla wrestling media environment, I think a lot of us are on a, a spectrum about what we are and what we do or whether or not what we do is actually professional. Um, certainly in terms of if, if being a professional means that you get paid to do it. Um, yeah, sort of, we, we, you know, a lot of people who do what I do have, uh, a Patreon and get paid to various degrees. And I've reflected on, uh, to what degree am I doing journalism? Is this journalism? Is anyone doing wrestling journalism? And I think we are all on a spectrum. I think that anybody with a Twitter account that's not on the protected mode is doing journalism to some degree. And as you may know, that's not necessarily a good thing. (laughs) And I'm certainly not a trained journalist. Um, I've been writing since 2015, but I'm not, not, not somebody who went to school to be a journalist. Um, 
So John Pollock from Post Wrestling has helped me out a lot uh, when it comes to a lot of journalism-type questions. As you may know, we, we did a story uh, the other week together reporting on what WWE's doing with a new program based on wrestlers from India or uh, the program that will be directed toward the India market uh, that WWE is doing. But as some people may know, uh, there have been a handful of times where I have uh, been sought out to be a consultant to WWE investors or for people who are doing, I don't know, this or that research about WWE business and, and for other things that are not related to WWE in particular that are related to the wrestling business. And I was uh, courted for another one of those occasions recently by like a real research firm and uh, who I've worked with in the past. And I did the questionnaire where they, I had to disclose all these things. And one of the things that I disclosed, which was not the case previously, was I had been in contact with WWE employees. And this led to that consultation not happening. And the reason why that would be a concern is because it, it raises potential liabilities about whether or not I have what's called non-public information. And therefore, there would be a concern about whether or not I would uh, intentionally or not reveal non-public information to investors, which would call, cause problems, I think, related to insider trading laws. So anyway, this made me reflect and think that, well, maybe I am veering down on the road towards being less of a consultant and more of a journalist. So it's a spectrum. But, you know, I'm, I'm not satisfied with the, uh, the state that wrestling media is in, and it just depends on how you want to define journalism, I guess, too. Is, is, is Someone once said to me that, you know, there is no wrestling journalism. It's not like there's a newsroom somewhere where there's an editor assigning all of these stories to various reporters. That doesn't, well, <laughs> other than aggregation, I guess, that doesn't really exist in terms of having people go out and, and tell this story or find original sources or new information. I, I, know, I know there are various wrestling news websites that do assign uh, various stories or leave various stories open to be picked up by various uh, writers who work for the, the, the news website, but, but, but mostly involves aggregating news or making news out of interviews that happen elsewhere. So I'm rambling all this to say that I think the type of information that Russellomics tries to distill is very much needed in the wrestling media ecosystem. The information ecosystem in, in, that relates to professional wrestling. I was originally drawn to wrestling business in the first place around five, six years ago because it's evident to me that there are a lot of opinions and there's not so much data or information to back up those opinions. And I'm trying to build the foundation that is that data and that information. So... That's that. I'm looking forward to 2021 with hopefully at least sometime in the year that has normal live events. I'm looking forward to continuing to do this program. WrestleNomics Radio, you will hear in the clips that you're about to listen to the, the apparent, you know, just the, the not realizing that this, the pandemic was going to, to engulf the remainder of the year and beyond. But anyway, thanks as always to the Voices of Wrestling Podcasting Network. Thanks to Rich Creech and Joe Lanza for uh, hosting me, allowing me to be a part of the Voices of Wrestling Podcasting Network and to feed off of their listenership. And thanks again to everyone for listening and for reading. Thanks again to all the patrons who subscribe 
and support at patreon.com slash Russellnomics. And thanks to everybody who has helped me collect data, do research, raise great questions, raise great suggestions. And thanks to a lot of the people who have worked in the television industry who have helped me understand the wrestling television economy, which has become uh, so important this year as the wrestling competition for various wrestling programs has heated up. I look forward to learning more and continuing to improve on all of this in 2021. Now here is the year that was 2020. Hello everybody and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. The day is January 30th, 2020. The time, I better tell you the time because we've got a developing story on our hands that may change by the time you hear this. The time is 6.17pm Eastern. I don't know if that's daylight or, or standard. I don't know what we're in. But it's 6.17 p.m. Eastern. And the news has just broken this afternoon. I think just after the uh, the market closed. The notification came up on my phone. And it said, WWE Management Transition. Because I signed up for the email alerts. And never did I imagine that I would read the news that I read today. It's a Dateline, Stanford, Connecticut. WWE today announced that co-presidents... George Berrios and Michelle Wilson will depart the company effective immediately and will no longer serve on its board of directors. Frank A. Riddick III, who has served as a member of W's board of directors for more than 11 years, has been named interim chief financial officer, reporting to W chairman and CEO Vince McMahon. W has commenced the search for both a permanent chief financial officer and chief revenue officer. Those are the two previous titles that Berrios and Wilson had before they were elevated to co-presidents. The press release goes on. W remains well positioned to continue its growth and operate effectively against its strategic priorities, including content creation and distribution, digitization, localization, and key markets around the world. The company expects its full year 2019 adjusted OEBA to be approximately 180 million. So that's a key point. That's a W's profit metric of choice. 180 million. We'll, we'll talk about why that's important later. The press release continues. Quote, I would like to thank George and Michelle for their 10 plus years of service and contributions to the organization, said McMahon. I'm grateful for all that was accomplished during their tenure, but the board and I decided a change was necessary as we have different views on how best to achieve our strategic priorities moving forward. We have a deep team of talented, experienced, and committed executives across the organization, and the board and I have great confidence in our collective abilities to create compelling content, engage our global fan base across platforms, increase revenues, and drive shareholder value. Hello, and welcome to the webcast entitled WWE Fourth Quarter Earnings. The decision, of course, of management transition was based on a different view of execution of our areas of, of focus of the 10 years supported by a strong management team, George Berrios and Michelle, made more than significant significant, uh, contributions to WB. However, with the change, we won't miss a beat. Okay, great. And then secondly, on the strategic review for the network, what are you guys trying to achieve there? I mean, is this a business you think you can sell, um, or are you looking to maybe turn this into a license stream? like your broader media business, sort of de-risk it with a partner like an ESPN Plus or something like that? I don't know if there's any more color you could add. I, I realize it's, it's sort of an ongoing review, but just what, would love to hear anything else you could share. Well, we have a lot of options. Uh, we can continue on as we are now uh, with an enhancement of a, a free tier and, and a uh, more enhanced paid tier, but 
we have that as an option. We also have an option. I mean, right now, there's no more better time to exercise you know, the selling of our rights you know, to all the majors, and quite frankly, all the majors are really clamoring for our content. Uh, so that could be a significant increase, obviously, in, in terms of revenue. Got it. Thank you very much. Let me just add that uh, in making reference to OTT and the interest of all the major players, um, we'd be announcing that deal if we go that way uh, in the first quarter. That's how far along we are. Are you confused by key demographics? With WrestleNomics University, my life has completely changed. With online instruction from WrestleNomics University, I can turn anyone, even you, into a WrestleMetrician. I thought I would never figure out how to use VLOOKUP, but now I'm cross-referencing data, even doing pivot tables. Are your Google web search miles just giving you a headache? Now that I know the difference between household TV ratings and P2-plus viewership, employers are basically knocking down my door. Unsure how to calculate compound annual growth rate? Before I earned my degree with WrestleNomics University, I used to get in bitter arguments with my friends about the attendance at WrestleMania 3. All payments must be made via gift card and transferred to a Swiss bank. Exchange to Bitcoin, then sent to the WrestleNomics PayPal account, marked as a gift. WrestleNomics University cannot be held liable for fraud or the violation of your privacy data. Now I'm able to seek out people on Twitter and show them that they're wrong with real data. Enroll in WrestleNomics University today. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Coronavirus Radio. Excuse me, WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston. I'm broadcasting on demand from Buffalo, New York. In the midst of a pandemic, COVID-19 has taken over the world and the wrestling industry. Just a few days ago, we were all careful and skeptical and cynical. Ah, the idea that WWE or wrestling events would be affected by this flu seemed unlikely. As someone said, this will pass. This will go away. But now here on Friday evening, SmackDown is about to be taped at the Performance Center in front of no fans. The NBA season has been suspended. The NHL season has been suspended. Major League Baseball spring, spring training has been suspended. Opening day has been postponed. The XFL has even been uh, suspended. There we are. NCAA tournaments canceled. Major League Soccer suspended. PGA Tour suspended. Well, one suspended. Soccer in Europe, suspended. With this helpful graph from the New York Times, uh, locally, I've got uh, my local Wegmans, just uh, toilet paper flying off the shelves. No one knows why, but it's gone. Not far from Buffalo, we have uh, someone in Monroe County, which is the county where Rochester, New York is. Uh, someone has coronavirus. And uh, All Elite Wrestling was supposed to do a episode of Dynamite next weekend. That is postponed indefinitely. But the question on everyone's mind, what will happen with WrestleMania? According to the Tampa Bay Times here, they came out with an article yesterday afternoon saying WrestleMania 20, uh, 36 is not a coronavirus casualty, at least not yet. The Hillsborough County, that's the county where Tampa Bay is located. The policy group, including the sheriff, the county administrator, they decided on Thursday not to call off the annual sports entertainment spectacle set for April 5th at Raymond James Stadium. But the group could reconsider based on how the virus progresses or dissipates in a week. That group of officials approved a seven-day local state of emergency in Hillsborough County, but that doesn't affect WrestleMania. Of course, that's WrestleMania is happening on April 5th, and the decision falls Governor Ron DeSantis' recommendation that cities and counties should postpone or cancel any mass gatherings over the next 30 days. 
So that does include WrestleMania. If a mass gathering is not canceled, event organizers should have screening measures in place to prevent people who have been exposed to the virus from entering, he said. So the city says they'll reassess it. The governor says you should probably cancel anything that's happening within 30 days. This led to uh, WWE later in the day putting out its own press release about its, its statement on the potential impact of COVID-19. The press release reads, Today, WWE communicated perspective regarding the potential impact of COVID-19 on the company's financial performance. Don't worry, WWE said. WWE has substantial financial resources, both available cash and debt capacity, which currently total more than $0.5 billion to manage the challenges ahead. So $0.5 billion, or as some people call it, $500 million. This reminds me of a time in as it turns out, July 2015, when what, just when WWE surpassed the uh, the half billion mark for social media touch points, social media followers, they put out a press release celebrating the moment in Vizic Man. I think on the following conference call, said it was 500 million, but the promoter in me wants to say half a billion. So they have a total of a half a billion in cash and debt capacity to manage the challenges ahead. The fundamentals of the company's business remain strong, reflecting the passion of WWE's fans and the quality of its content. Management continues to believe the company is well positioned to take full advantage of the changing media landscape and increased value of live sports rights over the longer term. The health and safety of WWE fans, performers, and employees are the company's top priorities, and management is monitoring the situation closely domestically and internationally. And that's especially important to note that uh, WWE has some European dates coming up in May. Uh, the, the potential impact of COVID-19 and corresponding changes in the way WWE operates may adversely impact the company's business including but not limited to its live event ticket sales and the sale of merchandise at those events. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston coming to you on demand from Buffalo, New York in the time of coronavirus. Again, or excuse me, prevailing circumstances. Circumstances are still prevailing. These circumstances are still growing at an exponential rate, with no end in sight, at least here as I record this on Friday, March 27th, 2020, here in the midst of a worldwide set of prevailing circumstances. But I hope you've washed your hands, I hope you've got your hand sanitizer nearby, because we may be going into some depth today, because I've been spending the day deep inside an Excel spreadsheet, modeling out the effects to W's revenue that these prevailing circumstances may have, as, as the months possibly go on here with no live attendances. No live audiences. Vince said on the earnings call that such a deal could be done by Q1. That's how far along we are. Q1, that ends March 31st. Maybe they would have that deal done by WrestleMania. Maybe the first pay-per-view on this streaming partner would be WrestleMania. But then prevailing circumstances occurred. Well, the latest I've heard, Dave Meltzer reported that ESPN Plus and WWE were in negotiations, but that the number... The amount of money that they were negotiating for was way off. Vince wanted way more money, wanted more than UFC got. UFC reportedly got $150 million average annual value. Meltzer reporting, W wanted more than that. Anyway, the prevailing circumstances, coronavirus pandemic has taken over the world. And that seems to have greatly interrupted whatever negotiations were taking place. And now in an analysis of W stock that came out on Wednesday from Loop Capital Markets, from analyst Alan Gould, he writes that this transformative deal is looking unlikely. In Gould's report, which downgraded uh, Loop Capital's price target for W stock from $36 down to $30, Gould writes, management discussed a potential transformative deal, presumably selling the W network to a large streaming company. The expectation 
was that if a deal were struck, it would occur in the first quarter prior to WrestleMania 36, which begins on April 4th. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, coming to you on demand, in isolation, in Buffalo, New York. It's April 3rd, 2020, in the much overdue time of coronavirus. Still in the time of exponential growth here in the United States. Although there were fewer deaths yesterday than the day before, which is a rare thing in the last few weeks here. I am washing my hands. I am still going to work at an undisclosed location three days a week. But I've been studying the effects, the potential effects of coronavirus on businesses like World Wrestling Entertainment and All Elite Wrestling. We don't know when New Japan Pro Wrestling is going to run again. All Japan Pro Wrestling has canceled the Champion Carnival. I think, in fact, they're going to have a tough time getting to Madison Square Garden at this rate. Maybe more on that later. But today we'll talk about what the effects will be on the businesses of WWE and AEW of COVID-19. Listeners may know, WWE makes a ton of money from TV rights. 2020 is the first full year of their new set of deals with Fox and NBC Universal for Raw and SmackDown, where WWE was granted big increases. And of all the revenue streams that WWE has, many of them are at risk to various degrees. But the revenue stream that I think is the least at risk here are their TV rights, what they call core content rights fees, which are the TV rights that they get for the broadcasts around the world for Raw and SmackDown. So this is the big point. Remember this one. As long as WWE and AEW, for that matter, continue to deliver content in their current time slots, I strongly believe that those wrestling companies will continue to get their expected payments from their broadcasters. As long as they continue to deliver new content. That doesn't mean they have to deliver live programming from a sporting venue. That doesn't mean that they need to deliver matches that no one's ever seen before. As long as they're not basically airing reruns of old episodes, they'll get their money. They can re-air pay-per-view matches that have happened in the past. They can do new best-of shows. They could do video and interview packages. They'll get their money. The viewership may be okay. The viewership may be bad. They'll get their money. And what's not going to happen is neither WWE, Raw, SmackDown, NXT, or AEW Dynamite are going to go on hiatus until they can run normal events again. That's not going to happen. Those programs are going to stay on the air and try to sustain whatever habitual viewing they can in their time slots. And they're going to continue to sell ad slots for their broadcasters. And WWE and AEW are going to get their money. WWE is going to be profitable, probably just as profitable as they would have been close to it in the year if there was no coronavirus. AEW will probably be more challenged because they'll not be able to sell any tickets. WWE, I think it's more of a wash. WrestleMania week notwithstanding, which is a very lucrative week for them. Merchandise, I think, is a big question for both companies. WWE, Saudi Arabia is a big question if they can do another event and get another $50 million before the end of the year. But as I mentioned, on the other hand, it's much cheaper to produce TV when it's not a live sports venue broadcast. And I'm sure Major League Wrestling TV shows will go back to normal when they're able to go back to normal. 
and we'll see Raw and SmackDown and AEW and maybe NXT eventually one day from uh, back at sporting venues around the country. But for now, financially, I think they'll do all right. I have no frame of reference for how much money uh, AEW needs to generate to uh, break even on a year like 2020. According to Dave Meltzer, the Wrestling Observer, their TV deal with Warner Media, the parent company of TNT, you know, that deal was upgraded in January, extended to 2023 with an option for 2024 with an average annual value of $45 million. So I think they'll still get that money. They'll obviously be affected in terms of ticket sales. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking, ah, maybe I can pull a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now. Introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value a complete view of all possible cards and clear hit rates for each one. Now, when I buy slab packs at Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. I was able to open an Arena Club slab pack, and, and I'll be honest, it was a lot better than what you normally do. Say you go to a card show, and there's a random innocuous brown bag of cards, and yeah, you can open it, and look, it's going to be junk. You're, you, you know what I mean? Like You know what you're probably going to get in those. Maybe you find that fun. And sometimes I do. Sometimes I like just opening up cards and saying, oh, hey, look at some random cards or whatever. But if you're really in this game to to find value and find particular cards, it sucks to have to buy these mystery packs. And it ends up being, you know, almost nothing. You know, nothing of value. Not with Arena Club. You can display, again, of all available cards, hit rates, grading. So you know that when you're opening up the slab pack, you are going to get something valuable. You are getting something good. And Arena Club, in addition to having those great slab packs we just talked about, is also a marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, displaying, all that sort of stuff. But those Arena Club slab packs, man, they are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your polls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling, and you can have them officially graded by Arena Club as well. So again, setting these things off, it's going to be officially graded by Arena Club. And the Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent with full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. So whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform that you have to check out. So right now, I've got a special offer here for Voices of Wrestling Network listeners. You can get 10% off of your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Now, that's a crazy offer. That's 10% off a $400 slab pack. $40 off right there. 10% off your first purchase. No matter what that purchase is, 10% off. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net for 10% off your first purchase on Arena Club. And we thank them for sponsoring the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. I think merchandise is in question going forward, but who knows? Meltzer said that uh, with the extension of the TV deal and the upgrade in the TV rights of $45 million average annual value, that they would become sustainable already for 2020. Maybe they still would be sustainable in 2020, even without live events. But I can't say for certain. This is America. 
You know, you have the opportunity for failure in America. I'm not afraid to fail, you know, as long as I win in the long run. But I'm not going to fail at this XFL. You know, despite, you know, and whether or not, you know, people out there like the fact that Vince McMahon in any way is associated with this league, you know, or they don't. I don't know what I've done to offend anyone in the sporting world. You know, I'm in the entertainment world as far as World Wrestling Federation Entertainment is concerned. The new XFL will kick off in 2020. And quite frankly, we're going to give the game of football back to fans. The new XFL will be a, it'll be a game that's reimagined. Reimagine the game of professional football. The XFL 2.0 appears to be done. According to Field Yates of ESPN, on a call today with COO Jeffrey Pollack, XFL employees were informed that the league is suspending operations and all employees have been laid off. For a league that already had its game suspended, the news that the XFL is suspending operations and that according to NFL.com's Tom Pelissero, the phrasing used on the call was that the league is shut down. I'm sure there'll be more to break on this. I'm recording right now, Friday afternoon, Eastern time. But it looks like Vince McMahon's second attempt at a football league has ended. A further report on ESPN.com says nearly all of the staff was laid off this morning and a handful of executives remain employed. And the league currently has no plans to return in 2021. The conference call with employees reportedly lasted about 10 minutes. It's done, one staffer said. It's not coming back. No comment yet from the XFL itself. There are types of business for uh, exemptions to uh, essential businesses. Like you've, you've, you've given uh, WWE, for example, um, uh, the ability to... Obviously, WWE, there's no crowd or anything, so it's a very, very small number of people. Uh, so, so we just kind of look at it uh, on a case-by-case basis. Rob Manford, thank you very much. NFL, Roger Goodell, thank you, Roger. UFC, Dana White, Major League Soccer, Don Garber, WWE, the great Vince McMahon. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting on demand from Buffalo, New York. It's April 17th, 2020. In the strange time of coronavirus, an exponential growth does not appear to be exponential anymore in the United States when it comes to new cases. But still, thousands of people dying daily. WWE has released some 25 wrestlers that we know of. They furloughed nine producers, three coaches, laid off at least one writer, and probably made cuts to more employees in W Corporate. The XFL, Vince McMahon's other project, has ceased operations completely, laid off all its employees, except for a few. And it's been a, a busy week in the life of Vincent Kennedy McMahon this week. And welcome to the webcast entitled WWE First Quarter Earnings. We have just a few announcements before we begin. 
If you're listening through a phone line, you may ask a question verbally by pressing star then one on your touchtone phone. If you wish to be removed from the queue, please press star two. Today's call is being recorded. I will now turn the call over to Michael White, SVP, Financial Planning and Investor Relations. Please go ahead, Michael. Thank you and good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to our first quarter 2020 earnings conference call. Leading today's discussion are Vince McMahon, our chairman and CEO, as well as Frank Riddick, our interim chief financial officer. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. As you obviously know, our Q1 performance uh, was pretty strong. We it exceeded our rescinded guidance uh, in a pretty, pretty challenging environment. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleMomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting on demand from Buffalo, New York. Today is April 24th, 2020, deep into the time of coronavirus. But anyway, we're talking about W profitability, and W just laid off a lot of employees and talent and did a lot of cost cutting. I believe that W is still going to set its profit records in 2020. But I know what you're thinking. The, the largest piece of money that W has is its TV rights fees related to Raw and SmackDown. And you know what? Come on now. We're in the middle of a pandemic the TV networks have got to be hurting right now. Advertising has got to be plummeting. Maybe the TV rights money is at jeopardy. Maybe Fox and NBC Universal have told WWE, watch out, we might have to cut your money. And that all justifies laying people off in the middle of a pandemic when there aren't any other jobs to get. It all justifies it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and just to follow up, you guys talked a lot about Raw and SmackDown and what you're doing there. Is there any risk that we need to be thinking about that your broadcast partners, you know, say this isn't the product that I agreed to pay for because there is no live audience. I realize they're probably thrilled that they've got anything. Um, but you mentioned it's a different product before. So just curious if we need to think about that potential with your partners. You know, our, our partners obviously are not doing as well as, as they would like to, nor are we. Um, but as far as the, the content is concerned, they totally get, you know, it's not our fault. It's not anyone's fault. You know, you're not performing in front of the audience, but uh, they've lauded what we're doing because, again, as you just said, there's nothing out there now. You know, we're live sometimes, we're, we're taped sometimes, and, you know, we have a, a, a lot of a, a really good relationship with both, uh, both partners, and, and they have our backs as we do theirs. Great. Thank you. Well, all right, but, but, but this is only Q1, okay? This is only January to March. The pandemic had only kicked in halfway through the end of March, about a sixth of this quarter. But we're, as we speak now in April, in Q2. Q2 is going to be a full quarter of pandemic. And you just can't know that WWE is going to be profitable in Q2 or in the future. I mean, they lost WrestleMania money, okay? WWE had to do cost-cutting to protect itself. And then secondly, understanding that Visibility is very limited and, you know, makes sense to withdraw guidance. Um, just wondering if you'd be willing to sort of give a little bit of perspective on 2Q, you know, all things remaining equal right now, um, considering you didn't have a WrestleMania in front of fans, that historically that has cost you about 15 to, or that represents about 15 to $20 million of EBITDA. If you look at where last year was, and that, then you take out all the live events. Is it proper to think that 2Q should be profitable? 
Yeah, I believe based on the cost reductions, it's, you know, again, you know, we're not in a position right now to give guidance, mainly because of uncertainty on the revenue side. But, um, right. you know, if you assume everything else equal and, it, uh, you know, it, based on the cost reductions, yes, it should be profitable. That's interim CFO Frank Riddick taking that question, saying W will still be profitable in Q2, even though they're not delivering any guidance on what exactly that profit will be. So W executives here saying W is quite profitable in Q1. W will be profitable in Q2. So the, the layoffs, the furloughs, the cost cutting, pausing the stock buyback program. I mean, come on. There's, there's only so much we can really know about W. I know it's a publicly traded company, but there's still a lot we don't know about the company. You just can't judge. I mean, there's got to be something else that they're bracing for here. You know, W doesn't even have a lot of debt. So analyst Jason Bazinet asks the high-level question. Some of the actions that you've taken regarding like the drawdown on the revolver and the lack of buybacks and the reduction in sort of your CapEx guidance, um, it all sort of, for a company that doesn't have a lot of debt, it seems like a lot of aggressive actions, candidly, to me. And so it makes me think that maybe I'm underestimating the quantum of the cash burn or that you guys are anticipating through the balance of the year, or there's some sort of exogenous risk that you guys see outside of the live events and consumer products degradation, which I think is sort of obvious. So it, it, can you provide color, color on either of those two fronts? I, I, just don't, I just don't know if you guys are a very risk-averse company or if there's something more dour that's about ready to happen. <laughs> Any color? Well, I think, I think, you know, over, overall, you know, we are concerned about the uncertainty of the impacts of, you know, additional government regulations or changes in societal behavior around COVID and how long it will last. So we wanted to be, you know, we, since we don't know that, um, you know, we, we felt like we needed to be maybe overly cautious, if you will, or overly conservative to try to make sure that we had adequate financial resources to adapt the business however it needed to be adapted um, and whatever opportunities might put themselves in front of us. And so in an, I would say maybe in an abundance of caution, uh, because, you know, if you, if you look at the cash flow in the first quarter uh, with the changes that we've made in capital spending going forward, you know, we're, we, we don't see anything right now that would result in a huge use of cash. But, you know, we don't know what the outlook, we don't know what the you know market's going to look like or the performance is going to look like in the next few quarters because we don't know what the impact of COVID is going to be. As soon as we know that, you know, we'll have a better idea of how to model it. So we've been very cautious. And the old expression of cash is king. Again, it's like uh, we have no debt. Uh, we're not looking, as Frank said, to you know, buy some crazy something. We're just we're making certain you know, that we are being conservative. And as Frank said, maybe overly cautious. That's what it is. Okay. Thank you. They're just being overly cautious, Frank Riddick and Vince McMahon say. Some 25, 30 wrestlers, unknown number of employees, their lives thrust into uncertainty at a time of increasing unemployment. Goddamn, 75 years old. This damn virus. God, I'm already with the pants down. I can't control the virus. I hate it when I feel like I'm not in control. I'm 75 years old. All the mine. I'm 74. I have to redeem myself. I'm, a, I'm an entertainer. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm in show business, damn it. Don't tell them the goddamn wrestling business. This is the virus's fault. This is the goddamn government's fault, quite frankly. This all for luck. You're fired. XFL, WWE, two completely different companies. Got 400 employees over there. They're all fired. All these people in WWE, I'm gonna fire them too. 
wrestling promoter. That's all I am. Wrestling. Ugh. Everything else I've ever tried in my life. I've been a failure at it. I've never been afraid to fail, damn it. That notwithstanding, I'm not some highfalutin elitist. I was gonna be a bodybuilder. Bodybuilding promoter. Supplements. I'll get into the supplements business. That's what I thought. I'll promote boxing. I was a failure at that. I'll be a football promoter. I was a goddamn failure at that. I just want people to respect me. Goddamn, nobody respects me because I'm a, I'm a wrestling promoter. Make it sports entertainment. I don't have to do the wrestling anymore. It's entertainment. All my success is from the thing that I fucking hate the most. God damn it. I make movies. That's what I do. I make movies. I make movies. Uh, people laugh at me. They think I'm the pro wrestling guy. Laugh at me. My company. My company is Alpha Entertainment. God damn it. I'm a man. I'm an alpha. I'm in the entertainment business. People laugh at me. I'm so fucking ashamed of myself. Uh, this is only what my dad did. Uh, just Vinnie Lupton. Just goddamn Vinnie Lupton. is Friday, May 15th, a day when some 16 years ago, in a bicycle club somewhere, at a time far too long ago, I started wrestling. But I am not wrestling now, because now we are some 60 days into the era of the coronavirus. At this point, the two biggest wrestling companies in the United States, WWE and AEW, are running weekly TV in arenas, small buildings, what have you, with no fans. The third biggest wrestling company in the world, New Japan Pro Wrestling, has not ran an event since, my producer's telling me, February 26th, when they last ran a show in Okinawa as part of the New Japan Road Tour. Of course, the big difference between New Japan and the other two, AEW and WWE, is that New Japan doesn't have enormous TV rights fees to collect from their media distribution partners. New Japan does have a TV deal with TV Asahi, who is a part owner of New Japan. But as far as we know, whatever compensation New Japan gets from TV Asahi is not comparable to that of the two major U.S. wrestling companies. And we believe that New Japan largely makes its revenue from live events. That notwithstanding, Harold May said that there are three reasons why New Japan hasn't run these so-called empty arena events yet. The first and foremost reason has been to protect the health and safety of our wrestlers and staff. When broadcasting matches free of spectators for broadcast online, even if we take all the possible precautions to maintain the safety of the venue and do all we can to ensure the staff and the wrestlers are healthy, the fact remains that safety is by no means guaranteed. Data has clearly shown high levels of infection within the cities like Tokyo, and therefore we believe that to stage events, even in empty arenas, involves a level of unnecessary risk. The second reason for the event cancellations is connected to the ability to use the venues. Many venues in Japan are run by the municipal and or prefectural governments. 
with their management deciding to forbid events from taking place in a bid to combat the coronavirus. Additionally, as the pandemic has escalated, these venues have closed their doors even to empty arena presentations. Since New Japan Pro Wrestling does not own or operate venues of its own, this has led to many cancellations. Lastly is New Japan Pro Wrestling's corporate social responsibility. New Japan is an industry leader, both in Japan and worldwide. With that position comes a great responsibility. As the global society holds a magnifying glass up to us, it behooves New Japan to act to the highest possible ethical standards. We are currently living under a national state of emergency declared by the Japanese government and have been strongly advised to exercise the maximum of self-restraint when it comes to our activities and individuals and as a business. To hold even empty arena matches in these circumstances would reflect badly on ourselves and our industry, and we will not trade our reputation as a positive force of, for social good even in the wake of harsh economic realities. May went on to talk about something called goodwill that New Japan has with its fans, but he also noted that the two-day Wrestle Kingdom in early January allowed New Japan to be in the black, insinuating that it allowed New Japan to be profitable so far in the year of 2020. It is the goodwill that we have fostered with our audience, our partners, and society that led to Wrestle Kingdom 14 this year becoming a tremendous success, allowing us to continue operating in the black. That goodwill must be protected at all costs. New Japan Pro Wrestling announced on Monday night that they will have their first event since the shutdown for COVID-19 on June 15th. That's this coming Monday. The event will be in front of no fans. The June 15th event will have a surprise card and will be followed by events on June 16th through June 3rd, also empty arena events, with the events on the 16th through the 3rd being a part of the New Japan Cup. The finals, then, of the New Japan Cup will happen on July 11th at Osaka Joe Hall. The venue will be open to one-third its capacity, or about 4,000 fans. That event on the 11th will be followed by a second event on the 12th, the next day, also at Osaka Joe Hall, also set up for one-third the capacity. The winner of the New Japan Cup tournament will face Tetsuya Naito for the IWGP heavyweight and intercontinental titles. Those two events at Osaka Joe Hall certainly being the most attended events since the COVID-19 crisis has shut down wrestling live events around the world. First, let's hear from WWE Executive Vice President Triple H, Paul Levesque, who was asked on a media conference call before NXT TakeOver, this call on June 4th, he was asked by ProWrestling.net's Jason Powell whether NXT, or WWE for that matter, was doing COVID-19 testing, and if not, why not? So, so the testing that we do is um, we have obviously a um, medical experts on our team, led by Dr. Maroon, Dr. Dugas. So they work with CDC and the government to determine what is the best approach for us to take to ensure the safety and the wellness of our performers. And that is what we do. That is working with the local and federal government. Um, you know, 
when when you begin to talk about various types of testing, and there's a lot of that um, thrown around, the, the accuracy of those tests become questionable, and how and and everything else. So, um, you know, we need to um, we need to do what we're being told to do by the medical experts, and once that widespread testing that is accurate becomes available, we will do so. But the accuracy of those tests has to be there first. But in the meantime, our medical protocols are extensive and most importantly, they've worked. Paul Levesque being questioned there about COVID testing, making it pretty clear that WB is not doing any COVID testing while in Orlando, Florida at the Performance Center there. AW, as we know, we covered a few weeks back, According to Tony Khan, the CEO of AEW, and Cody Rhodes, an EVP, AEW is doing COVID testing. Cody detailed some of AEW's precautions, again, which we covered a few weeks back. Levesque seems to be saying here that the reason why they aren't doing testing is because of the accuracy. You can't really trust the accuracy in the results of the COVID testing. And it's true that many COVID tests result in false negatives, which means somebody who actually has COVID-19 may take a test and the test result may not show that the person actually does have COVID-19. What there is not evidence of, and if anybody is actually aware of this being the case, then let me know, but what there is not actually evidence of is, is any widespread false positives. I could understand if there were a lot of false positives, that is, test results that show that the person does have COVID-19, when in reality, the person does not have COVID-19, I could see how that would be a problem that would lead to a lot of people being quarantined and a lot of shutting down of operations that don't need to be shut down because in reality, the person does not actually have COVID-19. But if testing, even if it's not always accurate, and if there are not wide instances of false positives, even if the tests are only 33% accurate or 25% accurate, at least they would find a positive case with some accuracy. When you're not doing testing, there is no way to discover a case except for looking for symptoms, which everyone is also doing. It's hard to understand why WWE, if they can afford it, and presumably they can. They are the biggest wrestling company on the planet. They are highly profitable. They will have their most profitable year ever in 2020. It's hard to understand, even if a COVID-19 test only catches the the virus some of the time, it's hard to understand why WB wouldn't want to go to every measure to try to prevent transmission for the sake of their talent and for the sake of the general public, who that talent subsequently may come in contact with. And again, if I'm just a WB investor who is only economically interested and has no human or health or safety interests, I still am at a loss to understand why WB wouldn't take every measure available to protect the availability of one of the company's greatest assets, arguably its greatest asset, its talent, and additionally, whatever staff and employees are working the events as well. Paid for by DeSantis for COVID. In the middle of a pandemic. Not only do we have a lower death rate, well, we have way lower deaths generally, we have a lower death rate than the Acela Corridor, DC, everyone up there. Floridians need a man who will put optimism above realism. A man who will take the lead on coronavirus. 
Florida is the new epicenter of the coronavirus. Under Governor Ron DeSantis, Florida has gone from a safe haven for COVID refugees to the nationwide leader in infections. I was the number one landing spot from tens of thousands of people leaving the number one hot zone in the world to come to my state. Floridians need a man who knows the value of new content. People have been starved for content. I mean, we haven't had a lot of new content since the beginning of March. A man who will not back down. We're, we're not rolling back. Like, here's, no, no. A man who will take on the bias of left-wing science. And part of the reason is that because you got a lot of people in your profession who waxed poetically for weeks and weeks about how Florida was going to be just like New York. Wait two weeks, Florida's going to be next. Just like Italy, wait two weeks. Well, hell, we're eight weeks away from that, and it hasn't happened. A man who knows that pro wrestling is an essential service. So we've succeeded, and I think that people just don't want to recognize it because it challenges their narrative, it challenges their assumption. And a man who can cut one hell of a pro wrestling promo. So they got to try to find a boogeyman. Maybe it's that there are black helicopters circling the Department of Health. If you believe that, um, I got a bridge in Brooklyn I'd like to sell you. Nearly 5,000 Floridians have died from COVID, but we know at the end of the day, you care about what affects you. So I think the. Um, Every day, and you are doing nothing. So I You're think. You're the information, and you are misleading the public. Over 4,000 people have died, and you are claiming the protesters. You guys have no plan, and you're doing nothing. Shame on you. So at that time, when we had the, um, when we were here, we had a whole bunch of concerns about what would end up happening in the next few weeks and, and months. We had concerns about uh, testing. We weren't able to even get tests. We weren't even we weren't even able to get tests for all the people who needed them at the time. In fact, paid for by DeSantis for COVID. The day is June 26th, 2020, and it's been a pretty terrible week in the world of professional wrestling. The speaking out movement on Twitter has brought to light numerous stories of alleged rape, sexual assault, sexual harassment, abuse of power, and other transgressions that have been perpetuated, apparently, for years within the pro wrestling industry. The other major story this week, as it has been since the middle of March, is pro wrestling's battle with COVID-19. Now, as many WWE performers have reportedly tested positive for COVID-19, many only being tested for the virus now after WWE has not tested anyone for the virus throughout the duration of these coronavirus times. July 30th. 2020, and WWE went to the SEC, went to the public today, and reported earnings. And what did we get? The big, the big takeaways, as I've been trained to do, is tell me what the five big takeaways are, biggest being, number one, WWE overperformed in terms of the profits that financial analysts in Wall Street were expecting. 
Financial analysts in Wall Street were expecting about eh, 12 million on the quarter for net income. WWE has reported, let's pull it up here, go to the trending schedules, go to the bottom line where it says net income, Q2, Q2, 43.8 million dollars in profit. That's after, that's after expenses, that's after taxes, that's after interest, 44 million dollars when the market was expecting 12. And leading off, we'll listen to this question from the conference call from Lightshed's Brandon Ross, who addressed Chairman and CEO Vince McMahon about ratings. Hello, everyone. Thanks for taking the questions. I have uh, some follow-ups on the ratings issues that were identified a little earlier. Uh, first, um, why do you think these are for Vince? Why do you think AW and NXT have bounced back better from the initial COVID shock than Raw and SmackDown? And then, based on your commentary last quarter, it seemed you had a strategy for fixing Raw that indicated patience in, quote, getting over some newer talent. Did you abandon that plan in firing Heyman? And more broadly, why did you um, fire Heyman? And uh, lastly, um, given Paul's recent relative success with NXT, do you think he could be of help on Raw and or SmackDown in an elevated role? Thank you. That was a lot. Um, Sorry. (laughs) We could break it down if you want. (laughs) But just first, why do you think AEW and NXT have bounced back better from the initial COVID shock than Raw and SmackDown? I think some of those are new. Something that's new uh, and what have you. And it's up to us to make Raw and SmackDown feel more useful. Uh, That is where we're going. Um, and I just, as far as continuing on, I said what was new and building characters, you always have to build characters uh, constantly. And it seems to me that, you know, as far as all the deck helping out on Raw and SmackDown, uh, that happens. It's all hands on deck in terms of uh, all that we do. As far as Paul Hayman is concerned, uh, he did, a, I thought, a very, very good job uh, in terms of you know, creativity. So that's Lightshed's Brandon Ross uh, asking the question with Vince McMahon answering. And to put this in some context, on Tuesday, uh, Lightshed came out with a blog on its website. Lightshed is a a uh, media analysis firm, uh, and they came out with a blog about W stock. So Lightshed, the people associated with it, were formerly uh, a part of a, a firm called BTIG, but now they've reorganized under Lightshed, and they post these blogs periodically about stocks that they're interested in, including among them WWE. And in an article that went up on Tuesday under the bylines of Brandon Ross, Rich Greenfield, and Mark Kelly, just to read an excerpt here, COVID or no COVID, creative appears to be at the center of the issues. Vince McMahon has acknowledged things need to change multiple times. However, while there have been short-lived experiments, the content appears to continuously return to a similar formula under his absolute control. McMahon went so far as to hire creative heads for Raw and SmackDown a year ago, with Paul Heyman heading Raw and Eric Bischoff heading SmackDown. And we, we know how that turned out. Uh, later on, 
One of the largest problems we have identified is an inability to create new superstars. Every era of WWE wrestling has been defined by some key stars at the top. Recent years have been bereft of that star power, with Roman Reigns the closest, but never on that same level. More broadly, there really has been very little younger talent that have broken through at all on their way to replenishing even the middle level of stars in the men's division. Now, more than ever, you're worried about what's going to happen next. You're scared for your well-being, your loved ones, your job. In fact, you're probably having a panic attack just thinking about it right now. Ongoing circumstances have forced everyone to rethink the future. Do you want to live in a world where you don't know off the top of your head the top five all-time pro wrestling attendances? When your children ask you whether the wrestling industry is a live event-driven business or a media business, and you don't know, what are you going to tell them? How will you feel? There's only one way to avoid this disaster. One plan that removes all the uncertainty. You need to enroll today in WrestleNomics University. WrestleNomics University, now offering affordable student loans, your tuition will be paid for today through our exclusive financing program that allows you to make deductions against your future Social Security benefits. At WrestleNomics University, we help make everything easier right now and help you forget about the future. In these troubled times, now more than ever, enroll in WrestleNomics University. And then from there, a big week for viewership for WWE SmackDown, a big week in viewership for WWE Raw. They registered some of their biggest ratings in months this past Friday. So not you're, you might be listening to this on the weekend, so not for the Friday that just happened, but for the week before. The introduction of the Thunderdome. SmackDown did a .6 in the key demo of 18 to 49 for the first time since way back on March 22nd. Total viewership was over 2 million viewers for the first time since June 26th. Meanwhile, Raw, four days later on Monday, also viewed by more than 2 million viewers, and you have to go back to April 6th, the Postmania episode of Raw, to find the last time that Raw was viewed by 2 million viewers on average throughout their three-hour program. Uh, key demo, a point six seven. And you have to go back also, I think that is, yeah, you have to go back also to the post-WrestleMania episode to find a .7. This episode of Raw followed SummerSlam the night before on the W Network and on pay-per-view. And people often talk about the post-pay-per-view bump. Obviously, we see that in the case of WrestleMania, which we just sort of alluded to. Many of the biggest uh, Raw ratings of the year are the post-WrestleMania episode, uh, post-Rumble often does well also. Uh, sometimes there's not a strong pay-per-view bump at all, uh, particularly for the minor pay-per-views, I think. But what about SummerSlam? Does SummerSlam usually uh, provide a bump to Raw the next night? Well, I have a spreadsheet for that. And the spreadsheet tells me, and this goes back to, uh, this goes back to September 2014. So this does not include the SummerSlam of 2014 in here. So all this data, by the way, is from Showbiz Daily, which you can find at showbizdaily.com. 
That's where I get this data from. That's where just about anybody who's talking about ratings gets their data from. They get it from showbuzzdaily.com, whether or not they credit showbuzzdaily.com. But compared to the trailing four weeks, this was the biggest SummerSlam bump for Raw on record, uh, or in other words, at least for the last six years. Versus the trailing four weeks, Raw was up 38%. Uh, that's compared to in previous years, it had done a 5% bump, 11% bump, a 9% bump, a 12% bump, a 3% bump in, in 2015. This year, 38% bump. So that's three times bigger by percent than any of the five years that came before. Now, that said, in the big picture, this 0.67 and just over 2 million uh, viewers is the least viewed uh, post-SummerSlam episode of Raw on the record to just give you an idea of how steep the decline has been. But nonetheless, Raw still ranking well within the top 10 with only five programs ranking above it uh, on cable on Monday. Uh, that and the key demo. So let's begin. The New Japan 2020 balance sheet. As you may know, New Japan has a fiscal year, which is not the calendar year. New Japan has a fiscal year that ends each July. And then basically in September, Bushiroad, New Japan's parent company, publishes their annual financial report in September. We get some information on that. I talked about that last month and wrote an article about that for WrestleNomics.com. New Japan uh, was profitable for the fiscal year ending July 2020. The balance sheet shows that New Japan made $2 million in net income. Net income is a, a measure of profit after all of the taxes and interest and things like that are taken out. So despite the pandemic, despite having to cancel some 63 shows, New Japan still has its head above water, much less profit than in prior years. Last year, $4.7 million in net income. Again, this year, just $2 million, down from $4.7 million last year. Year before that, even more profitable, $5.5 million in the fiscal year 2018. So again, New Japan may be making around $40 million in revenue. We know the sports division overall making $48. If, if in fact, we say that $48 million and say well, 6% of it maybe goes to stardom, 94% of it going to New Japan, we would end up with $45 million. They'll be pretty impressed if, uh, considering last year, New Japan did $52 million in revenue. And if this year, with four months of pandemic in the way, they still did $45 million, that would be pretty impressive. It's pretty impressive that they, that they were even profitable. Uh, you know, the company line has been that everybody in New Japan during the pandemic was paid as normal. Maybe there's some exceptions uh, with the major executives. But clearly, New Japan would have avoided a lot of expense by just not running those shows, which would have been quite expensive. So a $2 million net income is a 4% profit margin on the revenues of $48 million. We should probably lower that, though. Like I said, that would make the net income margin even higher. Uh, that, of course, is down from the prior year's net income margin of 9%. And the year before that, 12%. And I know I said no WWE talk today, but we can use WWE at least as a uh, a frame of reference. WWE did for net income. Again, New Japan doing two, $2 million in net income. Uh, WWE last year doing $77 million in net income. My estimate at this point for this year, 
$100 million in net income. It is Friday, October 30th, 2020, which means that yesterday was Thursday, October 29th, the day that WWE reported its third quarter earnings. It turns out WWE has a new top star who was unveiled on Thursday, and he too has not gone through training at the WWE Performance Center. New President and Chief Revenue Officer Nick Khan made his debut, along with Chief Financial Officer, also making her debut, Christina Salen. But that's not all. Stephanie McMahon, WWE's Chief Brand Officer, appearing in an elevated role on the earnings call. Vince McMahon, the CEO and Chairman, is just ecstatic. He's optimistic. The camaraderie, the talent, the revenue, the net income. The multi-part Netflix documentary. So we're going to jump around a bit and go to Brandon Ross's question from Lightshed. And that brings Nick Khan to go into some depth about what he thinks or what the nature of sports rights in general are going to be in an environment where sports ratings in general are lower than they've been before. So what does that mean for the future of sports rights value? Um, especially since you're a sports rights expert. And I, I know you, you said earlier in response to Curry's question that you think about for WWE total viewership, but a lot of your profitability, I would say, is, is reliant on the greater television ecosystem. And I, I wanted to get your perspective on what you think is going on with ratings, not not just for the WWE, but for sports more broadly. And does that and kind of the broader TV ecosystem pressures impact how you think about who you're going to partner with in the future and how you potentially need to adapt um, uh, WWE's content? And then I have a follow-up. Thanks for the question, uh, Brandon. I think there's a couple things. I think if you look at the structure of the traditional conglomerates, if you will. So remove the the fang for a moment. If you look at the traditional conglomerates, they're all getting there in terms of the recent corporate uh, structural changes. It certainly appears to us that many of these structures are realizing it's about content first, where we put it second, as long as we put it in a place that the consumers can easily access it. So, would it be so shocking to you, to me, to anyone um, who's following this stuff, if Disney in their reorg uh, is looking at, well, hey, wait a second, uh, we have great intellectual property, we have great films, we have great sports rights. If we put that all into one package, could we be competitive and beat a company like, Net like Netflix? They probably are thinking that. If you look at NBC Universal's reorg, it's sort of indicating the same thing. So the most important thing to us, uh, in addition to our fans, on the business side is that our current partners remain happy with the product while we all look at the landscape about where the business is going to be in three to five years from now. I think we all see where it seems to be going. Let's see if it gets there. If it's a streaming first world, we're prepared for it. So I want to play the follow-up to that too, but let's first unpack a little bit of what they're talking about there. 
as you may know, Disney has come out with Disney Plus, which is a way for them to distribute a lot of the content that they own. And NBCU has just introduced Peacock, which is a streaming service, where they're going to distribute a lot of the content that they own, or own the rights to at least. And the fang that they're referring to and are going to refer to more refers to, it's, a, it's an acronym that stands for Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. And these are often the, the five companies that people are thinking about when they refer to the big tech companies, the fang companies. And a big question and a question that uh, Brandon Ross from Lightshed often thinks about is whether or not those fang companies are going to get involved in sports TV rights and compete alongside with the usual networks like NBC, Disney's ESPN, Warner Media's TNT and TBS. And if they did, it would probably drive the value up of sports rights even more. And as always, and in the same way in how we talked about pay-per-view rights earlier, this has implications both, both in the U.S. market and for all the markets throughout the world. In the case of WWE, their two biggest international markets for media rights are India and the U.K. Great. And then I also wanted to get your view on the core content rights internationally, which was a bit of a disappointment last time. Where do you see the biggest opportunities and what do you think it's going to take to significantly grow international rights? Is is it simply the fangs, which you just mentioned, becoming um, engaged? And I guess since, since you worked on uh, sports rights deals in the past, where do you think um, the fangs are in terms of their interest for the type of programming that you have? So I think we've all seen with Amazon certainly an appetite for the NFL. We've also seen them sampling uh, internationally, specifically with tennis in the UK. Uh, It's certainly an indicator to me if you look at some of their recent executive hires, uh, we don't believe that you make those hires unless you're going to get uh, more, um, unless you're going to go deeper into the live business. Uh, If you look at Netflix's model, if in fact, Disney is contemplating whatever they might be contemplating, and NBC Universal the same thing. If you're Netflix, you're sitting there saying, okay, uh, we can continue to put out fresh content that registers perhaps on a weekly basis, but we haven't yet tested live. So are they looking at testing live? Do they look to test it globally or internationally first so they can make a few mistakes, as it seems that Amazon did with tennis? Um, They're all getting there if they're not there already. So we're going to be them with them, uh, again, with our current partners in mind first. But as the business continues to shift and Peacock becomes more of a priority for NBC Universal and with Fox's recent acquisition, again, it's all going there. So, yeah, our, our anticipation is that the fangs, if they're not all there, the great majority of them are going to be there in the not-too-distant future in terms of life. 